this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, it's another episode where we talk to one of our patrons and their our patron suggests a record for us. Isn't this a novel idea that we've come up with? I'd like to think so. I was trying to remember like where the idea came from. It goes so far back now that I can't remember like the, the kernel of the idea that we had for this, but it's really taken on a life. Speaking of going so far back, the gentleman joining us who uh, we recorded an episode this past weekend, but that episode doesn't actually air until after this episode. So we're doing this in reverse of how they're actually um, going out. He has suggested a number of records over the years. Would you like to discuss? Let's let's run through these so that people um, know some of the records that our guest has suggested. Turbo Negro's Apocalypse Dudes. Galactic Cowboys Machine Fish. Animal Bags. Animal Bag. Those are the ones he's joined us for. I know there are other ones. He's also joined us for a bunch of roundtables, swing in the 90s, compilation albums, disappearing acts, movie soundtracks, influential bands in the 90s. Oh, and Mother Love Bones, Apple. He joined us for that episode, as well as the 500th episode Nirvana roundtable and the episode we just recorded, which will be out next week after this. Uh, I forgot what that was, what we just did. I don't even remember what that episode was. What do we? Oh, re- record labels. That's what it was. What am I missing? Any other ones that you've suggested, Mr. Eric Peterson? Welcome back. Uh, Misfits, right? Yeah, I suggested the Misfits. I suggested uh, Screaming Trees Dust. Um, I think that's it, maybe. Okay, those are the ones that those were prior to joining us for those episodes. But you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten appearances. Groovy Ghoulies. Yeah, Groovy Ghoulies was another one of my picks. Did you join us for that? I don't think so. And Driving and Crying and did you say King's X? No, but so you might have suggested overall the most records except for Gavin because Gavin's got his three albums a year. Yeah. Suggestion. But you might be number two in the album suggestion list. There was the Twisted Willie one as well. Yep. Yep. Dang. I thought I knew your pattern, and now I don't know what your pattern is. <laughs> You've stumped me. Well, he's 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 definitely um, altered the pattern on this one, because when I went back, some of those I forgot, but when I went back, I was like, uh, I kind of know what Eric's, you know, where he's going, and I, I'm yeah. talking and stuff. And while this episode that we're going to do isn't far out from what we've discussed before i think it is kind of on its own island but i'm not going to spoil it eric would you like to share with our 
listeners, the album that you picked and why you picked it. Sure. So you were talking about my pattern. Well, there's a, there's a couple of records that suggested in the past that definitely might fit alongside this band in this record. The Twisted Willie, The Screaming Trees Dust, um, Driving and Crying. Uh, so this time around, we're going to be talking about the album Dirt Track Date by Southern Culture on the Skids from, uh, what is this, 1995. Geffen Records. Yes. Nice. You even got the the, uh, promo sticker on there. Yeah, I tried to save the promo stickers for uh, as many of my records as possible. Uh, Usually, even if I replace the cases, which I foolishly did once upon a time, I would stick these uh, in with the liner notes or whatever. So, And... We can refer to the band instead of saying Southern Culture on the Skids every single time. We may refer to them by their acronym Scots, because that's how they refer to it. Uh, in say uh, the production says producer Mark William and Scots. So Jay, if you would not like to say Southern Culture on the Skids every single time, just say Scots. Thank you. <laughs> I'll probably still say Southern Culture on the Skids. I often just refer to them as Southern Culture. SoCo on the Sky. Culture Club. <laughs> um, how did you discover this band, Eric? So I don't remember exactly. I believe that uh, when I was a student at Michigan State, that one of the radio shows I unfortunately did not listen to was the Tuesday night student radio station show called uh, and I would catch their promos or I catch the end of their show. Thinking I probably heard them there first. If not, this is one of those bands that were kind of around the alternative roots movement in the 90s. Uh, they weren't they weren't quite as rockabilly as say the Reverend Horton Heat, but they they were definitely kind of in that conversation and they were kind of like a crossover band. And then um you know, I believe the last two picks I had both had uh, bands that appeared in, in movies or in television. The Galactic Cowboys were in Airheads. Animal yep. Bag was on uh, My So-Called Life. Uh, Southern Culture and the Skids actually appear in the very first of the I Know What You Did Last Summer films. And uh, they have a song on the soundtrack there. So for sure, I eventually saw them there. Just want to make note that when we revisited Animal Bag, it uh, necessitated my wife and I rewatching all of my so-called life. Yeah. So, was, that, was that worth it? Oh yeah. It was definitely worth it. I mean, there are some heavy emotions going around between Angela and Jordan. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is thick with teenage emotion. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's such a Gen That's X fun. show that it's as much about the boomer parents as it is about the Gen Xers. Oh yes, Definitely. Um, I mean, you know, it's kind of perfect that it's only one season that in the same way that like Freaks and Geeks only ends up being one season. Like, I think if it had been four or five seasons, it wouldn't hold the same cultural, you know, interest. But having just that like one magical season kind of makes it, you know, interesting because there are I mean, there are some strange things that happen. There's like a there's like a angel in like one of the episodes, like the Christmas it's like, what is going on? Well, like and it's Juliana some... Hatfield. Yes. Yeah, Juliana Hatfield plays an angel. Jay, you probably don't remember this. 
Uh, yeah. So I wasn't in tune with my emotions at that time to be able to watch that show. <laughs> no, you're, you're mature. You're, you're more closed off. At the time, I was what? What do you call it in college? So yes. <laughs> well, I, well, it was it was ninety three, I think. So I mean, I was too. Jay was still a youngster, just in in, in the uh, end of his high school career, but uh, I had moved on to you know college and and being a man so i could i could get in touch with my emotions (laughs) (laughs) so jay were you familiar with southern southern culture on the skids prior to this episode yeah i generally um definitely remember the the band name a lot either through tour posters you know billings magazine reviews like it was a name that was just I, I felt like we would see all the time. And looking at their catalog, they obviously have a lot of releases, so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I can't, I guess I just generally knew maybe like what they would sound like in terms of like I was thinking like a Reverend Horton Heat or that sort of thing. Um mm-hmm. Rockabilly maybe vibe was what I was assuming. But that's about it. I don't now a uh, camel walk was a single because I played it for my wife. And she said, I don't know Southern Culture on the Skids. I'm like, you know this song. This was uh, on the radio for a short period of time in 95. And um, lo and behold, she was like, oh, yeah, now I remember this song. She remembered like the Little Debbie uh, part. She was like, oh, yeah. And so she's like, I haven't thought of that song in 25 years. And no offense, I probably won't think of it again for another 25 years. <laughs> so not a big Southern Culture on the Skids fan, my wife. Uh, I definitely knew when, I mean, I didn't know that was them when the song came out. I was like, I know this song. I can't tell you why I know the song, but I know the song. I'm assuming there was a video that went along with that on MTV. There there might've been, I I honestly didn't look. I do know that uh, there's a couple of tracks and that might be one of them that they've definitely recorded for other uh, releases and other labels. And so I think it might be a situation like the Verve Pipe where this was their indie breakout track or one of them. And then right. when they got to the major label, there's another one on here for sure. I, I think that falls in the same, same category that they recorded it for their, I, I think this is their major label debut. Yep. I'm pretty sure that it is. So this would have been like the indie track that they got played in college radio with their earlier recording and might've actually helped them get signed to a major. And then uh, eventually, you know, they have to remake it for the major label debut. Right, yeah, I had read a little bit of history that said like the the song Eight Piece Box yep. had already been recorded multiple times before showing up on this record. And um yeah, that, that there was definitely an instance here with like with some other bands where they took some material from other releases to sort of fatten it up. So, uh just a little bit of history on Southern Culture on the Skids from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The band as it is, is Rick Miller, Dave Hartman, and Mary Huff. There have been other members, but am I right in understanding that that's been the primary lineup for the band? Or has it evolved over the years? I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the uh, the original lineup there. Uh, Not the original, but the main stain. Yeah, this is from a later release. There's trading cards that came with their... Uh, their album of country and rock covers. So um, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. 
So, yeah, but that's been the stable lineup for the longest time with, uh, I think, Rick Miller and Mary Hoffer actually a couple or were a couple. Gotcha. Uh, and, uh, I know that, um, you know, when I saw them live in the 2000s, that this was the lineup that played. And I want to say that their membership has been other people that were involved with the largely the alt country scene as opposed to the rock scene from from right. the 90s. Uh, their first record actually came out in 1985, uh, self-titled first album um, on Lloyd Street Records. And 1991, Too Much Pork Just for One Fork is the name of that record. 1992, For Lovers Only. 1994, Ditch Diggin'. And then this is their first of two major label releases. 1997's Plastic Seat Sweat also came out on Geffen. And then they released um, Liquored Up and Lacquered Down on TVT and Telstar Records. And then they've had some live albums. Um, there's been Ditch Dig in Volume 2, Dig This. Uh, Zombified came out in 2011, which was that, uh, is that like a Halloween record? Yeah, th this is mainly, uh, a, there's some originals on here, but there's also some, a cover or two. She's My Witch is a garage rock song that I want to say is on the Nuggets box set. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun, garagey fifties rock and roll kind of, um, of horror stuff. Think, think the cramps, but maybe a little more accessible and a little less confrontational. Gotcha. And they, they do have a history of appearances. They, they performed Camel Walk on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno in 95, um, they played on Conan O'Brien. Uh, the song Soul City was used in Happy Gilmore, as well as the Dukes of Hazard movie that came out in the 2000s. Um, the song White Trash is on the Beavis and Butthead Do America soundtrack. Uh, they have a song on the soundtrack for Flirting with Disaster. You mentioned I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, there are songs that have appeared in Super Troopers and the TV show Psych and a bunch of video games like Major League Baseball 2005 and nascar 2007 um and yeah so they've they've been in the ether of american culture for quite a while uh even though they've never been you know a breakthrough artists unfortunately they were also included in the the article last year about the um, fire that destroyed uh material at universal in 2008 so it was some of their masters were included in that. I'm, I guess that would be the Geffen years that were probably so probably plastic sweet uh, plastic seat sweat and dirt track date. So. Yeah. So I I'm going to come clean. I messed up and did not post a preview for this on um, Patreon. I just forgot. I was so I was so busy trying to round up a show for the record labels episode that I never got around to putting up this post. So we don't have any feedback from Patreon. I'll say that Scott Hallgram would say um, he didn't like it. Uh, Darren Leach would say he's, he likes a single. Um, and uh, who else would say something? I think uh, Scott would like Scott would like the album cover, though. Yeah, he would. We dig the album cover. <laughs> so there you go uh let's get into the record jay tell me one thing 
you you liked about Dirt Track Date by Southern Culture on the Skids. I like the swampy vibes. I didn't expect to get uh, what sounded to me like like a little CCR, mm-hmm. little Creedence Clearwater revival going on. Um, so that was kind of a, a nice surprise. Um, I love all the tremolo guitar. It's to the point where like, I think it's on every track. <laughs> like, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody play uh, as much tremolo uh, as this album has on it. It's just like an instrument unto itself, um, which is kind of cool. It gives it this um, unique sound. And at times it it plays off the drummer really well with all that rhythm bouncing around with the tremolo. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the, you know, the, that stuff. I think the drummer is really solid here too. Um, it's not like a blistering drum performance, but he's got a really good feel. I think he takes some of the stuff that could sound a little thin, um, sometimes with like all the clean guitars and, um, he's playing like a lot of rim shots or playing lighter things that could sound kind of soft and thin. And he's just got a really good, um, good sense of rhythm and is able to kind of carry um, I think a lot of the stuff to give it a good feel, make it, you know, kind of feel danceable and uh, make sure it has a groove. So I definitely picked up on that quite a bit too. Um, and there's a couple songs on here that I think are fun, you know, just almost 50 style pop rock songs that work really well. Firefly is one that, that really popped out to me as being like um, noticeably, you know, more melodic and hooky and like, really well crafted. So I enjoyed that quite a bit too. Uh, how about you, Tim? Well, I agree with you on the guitar. There were at least three occasions where I went, is that the Born on the Bayou uh, lead guitar? <laughs> that dare, 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 like that little lead part. Um, yeah. And I I really like that like Link Ray rumble, you know, tremoloed guitar sound that you hear, like you, uh, Eric mentioned the cramps and, and where it's kind of taken into a uh, this dark, punk end of things and um this is definitely on the more playful side uh the the other thing that i liked in obviously having um having uh mary huff do some vocals on a couple of the songs either i think she sings lead on nitty gritty and then has some backing vocals on some other songs is that i started getting this early b52s vibe not the like Rome and and that real produced sound but the the real like you know rock lobsters that kind of tapping into the kitschy 1950s 60s you know early 60s um singles that would come out from you know various rockabilly and and artists of that type 
And that was, I was not expecting that. Like I was knowing that what Eric listens to only knowing one song, I was expecting this to go into more of a, I guess a punk or groovy ghoulies, like, like that end of things. But the fact that it stuck to the, to the rockabilly and, um, sort of the format of singing about this, you know, there's a song called white trash There's a very like, uh, uh, a certain aesthetic to these lyrics and to the, and to the sound that, um, carries all the way through. And I think it's thanks to, um, Rick Miller knowing how to turn a phrase, even though I don't always like, you know, sometimes I groan and I'm like, I can't believe you just said that. Like there's some lyrics on soul city where I'm like, dude, that's a, that's those are some <laughs> questionable opening lyrics. But, um, he's he's got a way of commanding this the band and the and the songs that pulls off what is a very fine line between like acceptable kitsch and then like goofy parody and he's able to walk that very fine tightrope and and pull it off and i think it's because i can tell that they're so accomplished at what they do like, I'm not going to say that he's Dick Dale as a guitar player, but you can definitely tell he's got some really interesting licks going on guitar wise. And that that to me is like what makes it. It's it's him and and then incorporating, you know, Mary Huff and <clears throat> and the and the percussion that goes on. You mentioned Jay with Dave Hartman, the drummer. Um, there's just a lot of interesting components that help make a number of the songs work out really well. Keeping them to two minutes, two and a half minutes also helps because anything more than that, like, like fried chicken and gasoline is four seventeen. It doesn't, I don't need four seventeen out of this band. I need everything to be like two minutes. That's, that's fine with me. Yeah. I would have, um, I'd be 52s for two songs. Um, I think if you push me on camel walk, before I had listened to this record, just played that song for me and asked me who I thought it was. I probably would have guessed like early B-52s. I mean, I'm not that super familiar with them either, but I would have mm-hmm. said like, oh, maybe that's like an early Fred Schneider B-52 song. Um, and then oh, yeah. Nitty, Nitty Gritty was the other one that definitely got that vibe. And I think uh, uh, lyrically, like, yeah, I'm with you, but I got to admit, eight, bo- eight Piece Box is probably the best song I've ever written about fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was listening to the lyrics. I was like, he's got some good points here. I'm, I, 
<laughs> I really can't argue with it. Eric, what works best for you on this record? Oh, I, I think this is I think the fun factor is what, what really works best for me. It's it it's what you're right, the B-52s uh kind of filtered through, you know, uh 1993-ish, you know, alternative sensibilities. It's got a lot of energy. Um and I don't it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I think the fact that you get a couple different styles, you get some kind of faster rockabilly songs, you get some slower things, you get some more bluesy things, some more swampy things. I think that keeps it from becoming um, like monotone. It's not like you're listening to one long song. And I just think overall it's, it's fun and it's accessible and it's a little bit different than a lot of the stuff we were hearing in the era but not oh, yeah. so different. And it's not Southern rock, but it is Southern rock. And it's not, you know, classic country, but it is. It's not 50s rock and roll, but all of those elements are in there. And that's kind of why I was saying the, like the cramps, because the cramps were taking all of those influences and filtering them through, you know, 70s punk, where this is taking maybe all of those same influences and filtering it through, kind of 80s college rock 90s alternative sounds and sensibilities i have to say i I think some of the most impressive stuff and we'll cover it because there's an ep that we're going to do for uh, the bonus and there's more instrumentals on there but like the instrumental make mine a hawaiian (laughs) is really good like there's some like slide guitar i think it's either slide or pedal steel or maybe steel guitar but I could I could listen to a whole album in that style. Like I love that, you know, it's got this vibe to it that totally works. And it's, you know, it's a two and a half minute, 224 is the length on that song. And it, you know, right in the middle of the record. And it's a nice little break in the middle of the record that um I greatly appreciated. Again, it shows off their chops as musicians where they're, you know, throwing in this little bit of Hawaiian styled guitar riffage that, um, you know, who else was doing that in, in 1995? There there was kind of a, along with the surf revival and the swing revival, there was also a Tiki revival that that was going on. And it was a lot of these, these same bands, um, that were coming out of the, especially the, that surf scene, uh, like the, the, let me, the, the Phantom Surfers and, um, Manor Astroman a little bit, uh, like all of these, these instro bands that were playing in the garage rock scene in the nineties, almost every single one of them would throw in an instrumental or two, Huevos Rancheros or, uh, maybe the Von Zippers, the kind of stuff that was on Estrus Records or on, uh, you know, some of those, those garage labels out of, uh, San Francisco. Gotcha. So that, that that was definitely a thing, and it I think that goes back to the taking '50s popular music and kind of filtering it through 
the the lens of of the alternative era. And you know, when I when I think about my favorite albums from the '90s, in fact, my very favorite album from the '90s definitely has a couple of instrumental pieces that fit with the vocal pieces. So, Failure's Fantastic Planet. No, you've <laughs> never heard of it, and I'm not brave enough to put it up for review. So. Mm. Maybe someday. We'll see. Maybe someday. For our 1,000th thousandth episode. Can't say yeah, thousandth. Well, well, I definitely have a, a very specific taste. So um, I, I know that it doesn't work for everyone. But I, I also think that the instrumentals on this record and throughout their catalog are uh, a good way to kind of break up the the onslaught of vocals and, and whatnot. And I, I also think that, you know, having seen them live and they're a great live act, and I think that's where they're probably most successful is, is live because they, you know, they, they've been touring for, I don't know how long. Uh, I went to see a show in Nashville several years ago and friends from Canada were playing that I'd never seen before. One of my favorite bands. They had actually played with Southern Culture uh, in Canada. And the night before the show, they went to get chicken. And who do they run into in line? Southern Culture you know guys so they're they're out there and they've been touring pretty relentlessly so do they tour as a three-piece or do they have extra players when they tour when i saw them it was a three-piece but that was 10 12 15 years ago now okay i'm just curious because you know like a song if you're gonna do a song like make my in a hawaiian live I, it shows that the steel guitar was played in the liner notes by someone else Sure. So it wasn't Dave or or Mary or Rick. Yeah. So I'm, I was just curious if they maybe like brought along an, a multi-instrumentalist to sort of fill out the sound the way that a lot of three pieces do. They might. As, as far as I recall, it was it was just the three of them. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of stage presence and charisma, too. And I think that that probably goes a long way to, uh, you know, that comes through on the record, in my opinion. And I think that goes a long yeah. way to making them successful. Let's transition, Jay, to what wasn't successful. What didn't work for you on this record? Uh, well, two points you guys touched on. One was, um, you know, it does cover a lot of style um, ground, and not all the styles work for me. Um, so, like, the funky kind of thing in Soul City wasn't really into that. Um, some of the surfs sounding things like skull bucket it's okay but then like make them make my in a hawaiian what a terrible name it like takes it in this whole other like it's kind of got this a surf vibe but it's obviously got this whole kind of thing going on so that to me was like oh this is a whole other like, on that so just some of the styles they dip their toe in aren't can don't connect with me. Um, sounds much better live. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the recording. Um, it just sounds a little like turn turned down or something. Like I could imagine like it just being a little bit grittier, you know, a little bit edgier live would bring a lot. Um, was one thing I was lacking. I was, I was going through it. Just like you can, there is this, sense of fun to it and um they're obviously you know great musicians and 
um, there's an energy, but it's just, I just wish it went up just one more notch in terms of like grittiness and just a little bit more edge. Um, so those, those are a couple of things that didn't work for me. How about you, Tim? I just would have liked more Mary Huff vocals. Even I think she's only really on like three songs maybe as a vocalist. And I just would have liked just some harmonies, um, here and there from her because I liked when she was singing. I think it, anytime we've discussed this going back, you know, a decade, like anytime you have the opportunity to do a male, female harmony always sounds good. Um, when both people can sing and they both can sing. Um, I, I, I don't have as much problem with stuff like soul city. I kind of like that soul funk, aspect i agree it doesn't like fit into the aesthetic as necessarily as as much as the stuff that is you know like the hawaiian steel guitar sort of makes more sense if you're looking at this as like a rockabilly 1950s they wouldn't be doing you know 70s funk or soul uh but this you know the band's allowed to do whatever they want in terms of mashing stuff up and I think that's I, I think actually in in terms of what doesn't work, I think Camel Walk actually stands out more as being an oddball on the record than almost anything. Cause it's um it's it's a little more self-conscious than some of the other stuff because it doesn't have as much it's a, it's got a little less swing to it. And um a lot of the other stuff has like a light, a really nice light propulsion with regards to like the, the tremolo guitar and the, and the rhythm section and stuff. So, and that's kind of just like this plotting repetitive kind of beat over and over again, or riff over and over again. Um, so, Oh, I mean, overall I didn't have a huge issue with the record. Now I'll say this is very much a, I would need a reason to put this on. Like, I'm not going to throw this on every day. Um, this is not my like go-to for everyday listening. Not that I have a ton of time to just listen to what I want, <laughs> but I would have to be, I would have to be in the mood to put this on, but I could definitely, you know, what's funny is I, I listened to some of the songs and I was like, I bet Nina would dig some of this stuff. Cause she, she has a pretty wide variety of music that she likes yeah. and I bet I could play her some of these things that she would, she would dig it. Cause she likes like the baby driver soundtrack and it opens with a John Spencer song that she likes. And I'm like, this isn't that far off from John Spencer. And she, she digs that and she digs like, there's a, um, uh, there's a, there's a instrumental song but it it doesn't sound far off from it's got a similar sound to this record it's um Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers Egyptian Reggae and it's an instrumental mm. from what i remember um track and, you know, it's got, you know, Carla Thomas, which is a, a soul artist and the Beach Boys and uh, the Damned, neat, neat, neat. So it, it has some stuff that's like not too far off 
from here. The Harlem Shuffle, the original version of the Harlem Shuffle by Bob and Earl, not the terrible Stones cover from Dirty Work. <laughs> um, just don't let her listen to Soul City. Yeah, well, not that one. <laughs> but I could play. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a few tracks on here that I bet she, I could, she has an Alexa. I, can or, hear it. No, I got it. She has an Amazon playlist and we just throw songs yeah. in there that she says, Oh, I like this song. And we just add it to the playlist. So it's like a mishmash of like songs from frozen and then like blondie songs and, and weird, you know, Madonna and then, uh, you know, terrible pop stuff that I don't know from the last couple of years. Yeah. And Hamilton. <laughs> all thrown into their stew of craziness. So Eric, is there anything that doesn't work for you on this record? I mean, most of the stuff about it that, that doesn't work are, are very minor things. There's a couple of songs that maybe don't, um, that maybe aren't as strong as, as the, the strongest songs on this album. You know, maybe, maybe the recording could be a little grittier. Um, you know, um, you know, it's a 25 year old record. So some of the, the references and lyrics might not be, uh, might not be current with today's sensibilities, you know, fine. Um, but you know, as a listening experience, I can't, can't pick up anything to go. That was really not working for me. Right. Yeah. I was wondering about some of the cultural, references and get into that more with the ep i think um and wondering if they were if it would cause some problems um from a cultural appropriation standpoint i don't think any of them are 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 a negative and i I think that from uh what i know of the of definitely the music scene in the era that they were coming out of that was maybe um a lot more integrated in, in some ways and, and a lot more of is a post appropriation, a, a lot more people playing with, you know, older sounds. And especially when you're talking about, you know, artists and since maybe 1994 who are, who are riffing on the music of the fifties and sixties, you know, if the music of the fifties and sixties have some problem, then maybe that to me, you know, one of the things about this not being a Southern rock record, is that there's no grandstanding about the Confederacy or no called white trash. It's not native. It's not looked down on on right. you know white trash or white trash culture. Poking fun at the image. I think to me indicates that maybe they don't have some progressive views of the world. So. I don't know. I mean, somebody who was maybe hypersensitive, there we go. Somebody who's maybe getting a little hypersensitive might take some issue with it, but I don't know that, that, you know, 90% of people that, that are going to hear this and go, we can tell by the context that it's meant in good fun and it's meant to be paying homage and respectful and not to be derogatory. I think that's, that's kind of where they it maybe maybe more so than a, a lot of the other 
you know, two steps away from from where they are, especially in the country world at this time of um, of music that was being made. It's not jingoistic. It's not no. Um, it's not any of those those negative stereotypes that we think about the South. You know, you mentioned CCR at the top, and they're they're definitely one of those bands that was definitely a rock influenced band, but we're not like I don't. I don't necessarily feel comfortable picking on some of these bands, but like Molly Hatchet or Leonard Skinner or, yeah. you know, a Charlie Daniels band kind of thing. Right. So, you know, as speaking of that, like I did mention that they have this covers record, you know, who are they covering on, on here? They're covering, um, they're covering the kinks. They're covering uh, T-Rex. They're covering, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Rogers, um, they're actually, uh, you know, covering a bunch of garage stuff. So even, even in the country kind of rock covers that they, they choose to do, they're, they're definitely not, you know, sweet home Alabama or <laughs> right. You know, Devil went down to Georgia or something like that. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so 95 camel walk comes out as a single. I know we played it at the radio station, uh, at, at, W uh, F A L in Bowling Green, and I th- I think there was a video. I can't track it down if there was, but I don't. I I can't imagine that this sold a million copies. I would be I would be shocked if it sold half a million because this is such an outlier. I mean, I read an I read a review in the Los Angeles Times from 1995, and they were like. It was like three sentences, or you know, or th- three paragraphs of talking about the record, and then the last paragraph was like, "I don't know why they signed this band. Like, it's it's a bold move." <laughs> so even in 1995, when you know people were throwing anything at the wall, after grunge was sort of burning out, and you had you know your your wave of alternative bands, but not necessarily grunge bands, um, that you know putting out this record in 95 which means they signed them in like 94 that's a pretty bold move by a label that this is geffen dgc this is nirvana's label this is you know sonic youth and they're how are they getting to this record and what are they, what are they hearing in it that they were like yeah we can push this or was this a um just just some a and r guy <laughs> taking a shot to hit a to hit a one so anybody that, thing anybody that's heard me on here before can you get your bingo card i'm gonna invoke uh, the telecommunication act of 1996 one so when they were signed was still uh in an era of regional radio where they might have looked at it as we can you know they have a following in probably south carolina in georgia Mm-hmm. and maybe Virginia. And then you're going to get these pockets of roots rock fans around the country, you know, maybe they're going to they're going to be at the level of a Reverend Horton Heat kind of thing. And especially if you focused your A&R on those college rock stations in the south where they're probably playing clubs or you know, uh one-off owned radio stations or radio stations in in areas of especially the south where this kind of music was popular or still popular, they think, oh, we can, you know, 
we can sell enough copies of this there to to break even and to um and, and to build this band because this is you know also the this is right before we get to the era of really the labels honing in on there we need the hit for the quarter and when we you know when the goo 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 dolls take off everyone else gets forgotten kind of mentality so that well may have been uh what what did this and i i, I could totally believe an AR guy going they're huge in college towns in the south they get radio play in the in you know the atlanta market and the chapel hill market and you know these other, you know, Asheville, these couple other markets, and we can grow from there. You know, they're they're amazing live. People go out to see them. They they probably play like gangbusters in you know the Southwest in the dance halls. Uh, you know, because they have that mix of covers and instrumentals and soul songs and a little bit of funk and some rock. So people will come out and dance to it live. You know, Geffen looking at that Nirvana money and that Guns N' Roses money and going, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, here's, here's a quarter percent from those earnings that we can put into this band. Sure. Yeah, it's probably I was looking a, a real quick to see if I can see who their A&R guy was. So um, it doesn't say, I'm not finding very quickly who the A&R person was here, but I'm willing to bet that the, you know, Ray Farrell and Todd Sullivan are the are listed as A and R. I don't know those names, but um, I mean that. So here's another thing: is the uh, the art direction is by Art Chantry, who you know was the art director basically for Sub Pop and a lot of those Seattle bands. Additionally, they did have those earlier records, meaning they probably had a following. They were also putting out seven inch records with you know minor garage rock labels. They were getting hurt that way. They were on compilations, so they were getting heard by that underground scene. And maybe also at this time, this is still when they're thinking there's an underground and the way that these scenes have worked since, you know, the 70s is there's an underground music scene, you know, punk or hip hop or disco. In the 80s, it's, you know, new wave or metal, college rock. And you find the, the bands in this scene and you invest some money in them and you know, three, four albums later, the scene becomes mainstream and you know, they're off to the races. But this is right when that whole thing falls apart. Yeah, and I'm sure with these kinds of bands, at least at the time, they're low investment too. Like you don't have to put a ton of money into like right. having them, you know, paying for recordings and like they're going to tour regionally and probably do pretty well on their own. So they're not going to need a lot of label support for that. And, it's it's actually smart. The, the record business should still operate this way. Like, find bands that have you know proven a local following or regional following that does some of the things you mentioned. Like, can you have a band that has a lifetime career and builds an amazing catalog? You know, that's not a bad business approach to take. Versus, let's yeah. sign three thousand bands that. That might have a hit. And see so that's the kind of band that could be a perennial that, you know, every five years, you know, uh, the new cruddle, you would, you would sell another, you know, 10,000 copies of this record every, every year because of, you know, that quarter of a percent of college kids discover yeah. the band. Yeah, that's true. All right. 
Let's talk about ratings for this record. Were the album better EP or decent single? Jay, where do you land on dirt track rate? Dirt track date. I am landing at a better EP. I got at uh, Voodoo Cadillac. Make Maya Hawaiian and fried chicken and gasoline. Interesting. I think I'm also at a better EP, but I'm at, uh, I think I would take those songs. Did you include eight piece box? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm sorry. I got the wrong fried chicken song. Yes. I want AP, eight piece box, not fried chicken and gasoline. <laughs> I got thrown by all the fried chicken. Yeah. Um, but I would add, um, I like, um, I do like skull bucket and I do like soul city. So I would add those two to, uh, the list that you mentioned. Um, so, but that would be a solid EP that I would, I would put on, um, you know, every once in a while. I'd be, I'd be cool with that. Uh, Eric, should I so, ask? Well, it's, it, to me, it's a worthy album. And, right. Um, the reason being that despite whatever quibbles I, I, I have with this, you know, when I was driving around in the car with it the last week, week and a half, you know, there was never attempted to skip anything. Uh, to me, this is completely a, a record that you can put on and leave play and even anything that maybe you're not enjoying deeply at the moment it's going to be over soon enough that uh to me this is also the kind of a uh, record that you know some of the the lyrics aside that you know you could throw in your mix for a barbecue or you know some kind of gathering at home with a, you know a mixed generational group that's not who's having gatherings not necessarily gonna there should be no gatherings uh, you know <laughs> i'm typing hypothetically talking <laughs> hypothetically um I was yeah, sitting here. I, I, I was sitting here thinking about like driving my car again. I was like, Ooh, "People drive cars." I forgot about that. So, I mean, uh, I mean, my question is: is is there anything on you know? Is there anything on here majorly that you wouldn't want your grandparents or your children to hear? Is there anything that you're gonna have to like sit down and explain? Well, I mean, what's the what's the opening lyrics to Soul City? I mean, that's that's one maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad message. It's just, I, I, I get where you're coming from there. I'm just, I'm just saying that as, as an experience, it's not, this isn't Guar. This isn't Wasp. No, no, know? no, no. This, yeah. this isn't, um, you know, this, this isn't something that's super explicit, but I, I, just as a record and a style of music, I, I don't think it's necessarily something that's going to be abrasive or inaccessible. So, right. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you drop drop a track or two, fine. But, you know, throwing a lot of this stuff on a playlist for, like I said, a, a barbecue or something like that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, driving around in the summer, I think is fine. I mean, like the I most totally likely that. thing that would happen is that and, I would um, make a Spotify playlist. And I would, I would have like a rockabilly playlist. And I'd pick like six songs from this and then six songs from other rockabilly artists and put them all in there on a shuffle. That's, that's the most likely result so 
I had fun listening to uh, the end of Dirt Track Date, just listening to the like what <laughs> seems to be an authentic recording of a Dirt Track. <laughs> yeah, and I would have to check it, but I think that that was one of those deals where they they put each like lap on a different track, so it's that that '90s thing of having like 87 tracks on a compact disc. Because half of them are like one oh second of silence, but it's a the lapse for like ten minutes or something. That's funny. It just came on while you know I'm just sitting here working. I'm like, wow, it's been on for a while. <laughs> I think I'm listening to the whole race. <laughs> but <coughs> like, it gives you a feeling for the uh, yeah, you know, for the the milieu. I guess is what you would call it. Yeah, I mean, of all the way, uh, all the goofy, you know, hidden tracks we've heard on 90s records it was one of the ones that you know i appreciated more than most so all right we're going to do a little bonus material at the patreon we're going to discuss the 1996 santo swings viva del santo which was released on estrus <laughs> records um the year after this came out but and and it does include uh a track from this so if you want to hear that bonus material you got to join us over at patreon which you can do by going to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com for the patrons who watch the video eric is also flashing all of his merch Related to Cento Swings and other releases. Yeah. <laughs> you got that down. Thank you. I've been working on that. Uh, also, digmeoutpodcast.com is where you go to suggest a record by putting it into our suggest an album field, and you can write up some notes, send it our way, and we'll add it to a future poll, which is voted on at Patreon. You can also sign up for the Box Newsletter, delivered to you every week with reviews of new albums that have just been released or recently been released, as well as um, movies and books relevant to 80s and 90s music. Lastly, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at Apple Podcasts. Eric, thanks for coming back once again. We look forward to our extended chat over at Patreon, as if we're not going to do that in 10 seconds when they wrap the show up. It's like I'm talking about something that's going to happen a week from now. <laughs> uh, so for Jay. Thanks for having me. Yes. It's always fun. It is always a blast to have you on. You always bring the good stuff especially the stuff related to TV uh, and movies that uh, we go back and watch again. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Went to the window.